Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At MidwayUSA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. PETA, you know, people for the ethical treatment of animals, nobody thinks fish are cute, right? Well, a, f a few years ago, oh yeah, well, there you go. You're, you're the minority. I mean, I think fish are cool. PETA was like, you know what? People don't think fish are cute, so we need to make people eat less fish. So we're going to come up with a campaign that says, save the sea kittens. And so they had all these like images of fish, but they looked like cats. And they were like, oh, you need to save the sea kittens from being eaten. Hey, this is Trevor Williams with Farm Traveler, and you're listening to the Tom Rowland Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast today. We've got a special one. Never done this before, but I was on the Outdoor Collective, the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, and I started listening to this show called the Farm Traveler Podcast. Really liked it. Trevor Williams is the host of the Farm Traveler Podcast. He has a lot of educational background in agriculture. And boy, I got a lot of questions about where my food comes from, what's the best choice, how do I make the best choice for my, my family? and got Trevor on the show, had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Trevor Williams with the Farm Traveler Podcast. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Trevor, I'm glad to have you on the show, man. Thank you for hey, spending Tom. a little time with us. Absolutely. Thanks for reaching out, man. Really excited to be on. Yeah, well, I've been um, listening to your podcast on the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. I was looking around there and I thought I saw a couple of topics that were interesting to me. I am very particular about my food. I want to mm -hmm. know where it came from as much as possible. I want to try to catch it or kill it myself if possible. And then I want to try to make, you know, outside of that, I want to try to make the best choices that I, that I possibly can. But Man, it's confusing, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> it is really confusing. So I started listening to your podcast, and I thought maybe uh, you would be a great person to ask. So first of all, though, what what's your background? Like, what makes you kind of lead you to doing a podcast like Farm Traveler? Your podcast is great, by the way. Quality's awesome, and your content's awesome. But, you know, and you obviously know a lot about what you're talking about. But what what's your background? 
Well, thanks. I'm real glad you've been listening to it. So I grew up in Blundstone, Florida, real rural community. Um, my grandpa had a catfish farm right behind our house. And I was an FFA in an ag program in high school. And then I was a state officer in FFA, which is super, super ag-related, kind of talking about the, the importance of agriculture, agri- agriculture job opportunities. And I was a state officer here in Florida from 2009, 2010. And then I went to the University of Florida where I got an ag ed degree. So I actually taught high school ag classes in Daytona for two years. And then I missed kind of being back home. So I moved back home to Blundstown. So I'm super passionate about ag. I've kind of been around it my whole life. And when I moved back home, I kind of switched to being um, a software analyst. But I really missed being like an active part in the ag industry, kind of teaching people about ag. And so my wife was like, hey, you should start a podcast. So we started it. We've got a lot of really cool, interesting people on. The whole goal of it is to kind of, kind of like you're talking about, people have no idea where their food comes from. They want to learn more about it. And so the goal is to kind of show the people behind our food production that they've all got really cool stories and they're all doing their absolute best job to provide us with the most, with the safest, most abundant food supply out there. And it's funny because we'll, I always think that we'll treat chefs like celebrities, but farmers, mm. the ones that actually, that actually like create the food, that put the most work into it, a lot of people wouldn't give them the time of day. And so I really want to bring those people to light and kind of give them an opportunity to kind of share their stories and where we can learn where their food comes from. Because I mean, a lot of people right now know about fake news and there's so much fake news about about food products and what goes into it. So I really hope that our podcast can kind of better inform consumers to where you can eat healthy and also save a lot of money at the grocery store. So that's kind of the whole goal behind our little Farm Traveler podcast. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Um, I see that there is kind of a movement towards, you know, some of the farmers becoming more of a, not necessarily a celebrity, but certainly being recognized for what they were doing. And I read uh, Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma. Have you read that book? No, I haven't. I, I think it's on my reading list, though. Yeah, it should be. I mean, you you probably wouldn't get as much out of it as as someone like myself did because you already know so much about what he's talking about. But the whole premise of the book is that he's going to create a plate of food for his dinner entirely by himself. Nice. That's a lot harder than he had ever expected. And so in doing it, he travels around and and he's going to hunt and he's going to fish and he's going to try to grow some stuff. But there's obviously some things that he's not capable of doing. Um, and it leads him to this uh, this farmer who rotates his crops and and grows all di- all kinds of different things. He has like turkeys and chickens and cows and pigs and and he moves them all around his farm and he has like this mobile egg house. That, that he moves all around so the chickens get out and they, they move all around this field. And then, then here comes the next thing, I guess, was the turkeys would come through there and then the, then the, um, the pigs and then the cows, or maybe I have it all, all wrong on the order. But then he would just kind of move this whole operation all around and he considered himself a grass farmer. And, mm-hmm. and Poland spent a, a lot of time in that book talking about this guy, about his operation and how important it was and 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 really his different thinking about producing food, which I don't know, I, I kind of see that if if a book like that becomes really popular, that kind of starts the movement of people kind of wondering, okay, well, is there a place like that kind of near me or how how where is the food that I'm eating coming from? So I do kind of see that there is already there are, is already a kind of movement towards that. Your your stuff will do a lot as well to to continue that. But 
there is definitely a disconnect with food uh, right now. And kind of, I have this kind of thing that I talk about podcasts. And I always think that the more people are interested in Twitter, which is obviously very popular, 150 characters or less, and, and you know, Instagram and these short, tiny bits of information, the more people that get interested in that, there's also this craving for more of a long-form content, like a hour-long, two-hour, three-hour podcast or audio book or something like that. And I kind of feel like it's the same with the food system right now. The more people that become completely disconnected with their food and have no idea where it's coming from, it seems like there's another group that becomes more engaged and wanting to know more and more and more about where their food comes from. It's kind of a funny kind of diametrically opposed. Do you see that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, so when we started off our podcast, we were doing them like 20, 30 minutes, but I got more and more feedback like, hey, you should do like 45 minutes or an hour. Like this is really good content, but we want to learn more of it, like more in depth with each topic. So there definitely seems to be more and more people interested in it. There is such a disconnect. I mean, like people don't know where their food comes from. They don't know what GMOs are. They don't know, like right now, something I like to talk about anytime we interview dairy farmers, um, this whole almond milk, cashew milk, pea milk versus actual regular dairy milk. Yeah. So there's just so much like random information out there, so much misinformation out there. I mean, of course, in a perfect world, we could educate everybody on where their food comes from, but that's, I don't think that's ever going to happen. But I mean, we're getting more and more people kind of getting more interested in buying local produce or buying food from people that they know. So I think it's kind of slowly catching on, which is really, really cool, especially because, I mean, there's a statistic in the ag industry that um, by 2050, there's going to be 9 billion people. So that's like 2 billion more right now. And we're already having trouble feeding those 7 billion. So we're going to have to figure out something to feed 2 billion extra people in like 40 years. So I think the more people realize what goes into food production and the more they research it, I think we actually might stand a chance at feeding 9 billion miles in a couple of years. That's interesting. Let's, well, let's start there really about the, about, you know, just somebody like myself that's, that's trying to, to make the best choices possible. I go to the farmer's market, but even then I'm confused. It looks, it looks good, but I'm thinking, okay, well, nowhere does it say that this is organic? How do I know that my local farmer is not pouring whatever on the food? How, how do I know that I'm making a better choice by going local rather than buying at Whole Foods or somewhere like that just for vegetables? Let's just start with vegetables. It's also very confusing to the consumer and certainly to me as well is when I, when I see that there's like a catchphrase or some sort of label that gets put on food, call it organic, or call it, you know, as far as eggs are concerned, there's tons of those, like pasture-raised, cage-free, vegetarian feed, all of these things that I'm, I'm just looking at this going, they, that's a way to sell product. I don't know what that means to me and my health. Like, they just take organic, and I'm sure that there is a, a minimum a minimum way to be able to put organic on your on your package. You probably know that. Let's start there. Yeah, man, man, you hit a nerve. Um, when it comes, <laughs> there's so much information when it comes to just random sayings and just so much misinformation on packaging. So, talking about the farmers market, a lot of, a lot of people don't really realize that when it comes, if you go to a, a local farmers market, you're going to be saving so much in terms of the impact for the environment because you're going to be be buying produce that was locally sourced. So you're going to have to forget about 
or you're going to completely eliminate the transportation costs that like, let's say you bought a squash from Whole Foods that maybe came from Iowa or somewhere like that. If you buy it locally, you're going to save on transportation costs. You're going to save on CO2 emissions. You're going to save plastic packaging from being created to help have that, to help transport that item. So you're saving a lot of stuff there, especially when it comes to the environment. I mean, a lot of people are more interested in climate change now. So I mean, when you buy locally, you're saving numerous tons of CO2 coming from the atmosphere. I mean, if you do that over a long period of time. But I'm um, going on the labeling. Yeah, you've got, there's organic, there's free range, there's non-GMO, there's all this stuff. And what I think it boils down to is that you need to do what is best for your diet. Like if you're vegan, great. If you're vegan because of your diet, like absolutely, that that's fantastic. Do what is best for your diet because there's some people out there that, do best on like an all carnivore diet and they're completely healthy, but all they do is like eat meat and a few vegetables. And I think that's crazy, Mm -hmm. but really, really cool. But in terms of like food packaging labels, you've got to be very, very careful. Um, A great example is you'll sometimes see chicken and it'll be packaged chicken and it'll say our chicken is raised without antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Well, usually at the end of that, there will be a little asterisk that will say in very, very tiny letters under that saying that will say, antibiotics are illegal in the United States for chickens. And I had a professor at UF that told that told us this. If we gave antibiotics, it would be given if we give if we gave chickens antibiotics, it would be given via a shot. Let's say it took one second to give a shot to, to a chicken. So to give all the chickens in the world right now a shot, it would take seven years. So we're obviously not going to give them via shot. We're not going to give them antibiotics. So all chicken you eat is going to be antibiotic free. So if you hear something that says, oh, our chicken's antibiotic-free, oh, oh, they're saying, oh, it's going to be healthier for you. Well, all chicken you eat is going to be antibiotic-free, so you don't need to worry about that. <laughs> and with organic, there have been no studies that suggest that organic produce is better than regular produce. Organic doesn't necessarily mean that it's pesticide-free or fertilizer-free. Usually organic, they have to be naturally occurring chemicals like spearmint, peppermint oils that are going to be sprayed on actually a lot more frequently than regular crops. But I mean, nine times out of 10, it'll, it's fine. If you want to pay the extra dollar to buy organic produce, go ahead. That's fine. That's your prerogative. But the cheaper regular produce that is not labeled organic is going to be just as safe, just as nutritious as the regular products. Usually it's like a marketing ploy. If you put organic on anything, people are going to think it's automatically healthier and they're going to go straight towards it. Right. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. And they then they do it with, you know, whatever is popular. They'll put paleo on something and and people will go right for it thinking it's thinking it's healthy. They'll put vegan on something and it's loaded with sugar and all kinds of terrible ingredients reading on the back of it, but that seems to be healthier because somehow it's vegan. Um, no, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, but it just seems like whatever is popular, whatever whatever seems to be popular, that ends up on a package quickly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just don't know what those things mean. Tactics. Do you know what what what's the minimum requirement to call a product organic? Do you know? You know, I don't know. I know there's a lot of places that use like there's some milk brand that just uses I think it's Organic Valley and they just use it in their in their brand name and so they can use it and it's free for whatever, but um, to be to be labeled that your product is organic, you have to go through this whole ordeal with the United States Department of Agriculture and a few other agencies. And they'll come out and check your crops. They'll check your pesticides. They'll check everything. 
and make sure that you are actually doing organic work. And so it, you do have to, I think it's something like three or four years, you have to be doing that process until you can achieve the organic label. I'm not entirely certain on that, but there are some hoops you have to jump through for your products to get the organic label. So it, usually they can't just slap it on there, but it's really when it gets to the big brands where they'll say, oh, our stuff is organic. They'll use it in advertising just willy-nilly. And so it might not actually be organic, but they will say it is. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's confusing. <laughs> oh, very. very. My favorite one my favorite one is non-GMO um, pink Himalayan sea salt. So there, in, in the U.S. right now, there's like 13 GMO varieties of different foods like alfalfa, apples, soybeans are one. And so they put the non-GMO label on pink Himalayan sea salt. Well, salt's a mineral. You can't genetically modify a mineral, but they put it on there anyway because it makes it sell. So that's one of those things where every time I see it, I just laugh. I'm like, why is this a thing? Do they put vegan and vegetarian and You know, luckily I have not seen that also? yet, but when they put that on the bottle, I will laugh hysterically if they put vegan and paleo all on that. <laughs> I, I wouldn't put it past them. Well, you see that sometimes and it's like, it's like something... Um, I don't know. You'll see something and it's like, it's vegan and, or it's vegetarian. And it's like, well, it's broccoli. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course it's vegan. <laughs> I mean, it, that's, that's kind of the definition. It's a vegetable. But, yeah, exactly. I mean, it all goes into, into selling the products. But when you go to, um, you know, one that, that I tend to pay attention to is beef. Do you know a lot about beef um, production? I do. So we've interviewed a couple of people on the podcast. Beef production is great. Um, Florida, I think we rank in the top 15 yeah. in the United States in terms of beef production, which is really cool. You wouldn't think about it when you think about, uh, you know, the Sunshine State, Disney World, vacation, all that. But we're actually really high up there when it comes for beef. So I love interviewing. Uh, beef ranchers always have some really good stories to tell. There's a lot that comes into play. You've got like free range beef, grass finished, grass fed, grain finished, grain fed. So it's one of the more popular industries here in the U.S., and there's always some information going on about it. Right. So what about the differences between all of those things? Like, that's what I go look for. Um, I'm looking for, if I could, possibly I'd get grass-fed beef. But I know that it also needs to be grass-finished to get kind of what I'm looking for. And so you, I don't often see grass-fed, grass-finished beef. But tell me the difference as you see it between all of those things that you just said, pasture-raised, grass-fed, grass-finished. Like, how, does, how do you even know just because it says on the package, is that, does that mean that that's really what it is? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important part about that is to know where you go, ask your butcher. Nine times out of ten, if you go to Publix or Whole Foods or wherever, ask your butcher. They're going to know exactly where it comes from. They're going to know if it's grass-finished and grain-finished or whatever. So when it's, you've got two types, you've got grass-fed and grain-fed. So grass-fed is going to be a lot cheaper for the farmer because the cows can just go out, eat grass, what they naturally eat, and that's all fine and dandy. It's great. And then you've got grain-fed where they're fed grain. Obviously, it's going to be a mix of different grains, whatever is local for the farmer, whatever is going to be best for the diet of that cow. And so what, usually, nine times out of ten, what happens is that when the cow gets to a certain weight, they're then shipped off to a finished farm where they're going to put on more weight until they're ready for processing. So there they can go to a grain finished operation or a grass fed operation, which is kind of the same thing. They're either finishing on grass or they're finishing on grain. 
Grain helps them put on a little bit more weight a little bit quicker. And you'll see studies in some info if you just look on the internet for it. You can find that grain finished, or I'm sorry, you'll find that grass finished will be a little bit healthier. It'll be lower in some fats, higher in protein. But I mean, again, that's all for you and for your diet. I usually try to go for grass-fed as well. But if you're if you're confused about it, I would say find your butcher, ask them about it. They will know where it's coming from and if it's actually grass all the way through or if it's grain a little bit part of the way. So yeah, you got to be tricky because sometimes it'll say, oh, grass-fed. Well, okay, it was grass-fed for a couple of weeks and then finished on grain. So you got to right. be you you got to make sure you're you're asking all the right questions and doing a little bit of research. And you think that that. I mean, obviously, at something like a Whole Foods or something, you know, a specialty store like that, you're going to get a butcher that that knows. Are, and Publix probably, you know, high reputable uh, grocery stores. But do you think you're finding that at every grocery store, like different ones, like smaller ones? The smaller ones, I would say the butchers might know a thing or two about where it's coming from. But I mean, they wouldn't be as knowledgeable as like the big chain stores, I would imagine. But I mean, I mean, if you have like a local butcher where it's like your friend Fred from high school or something, I guarantee you he's going to know everything about that cut of meat, where it comes from. So, and I mean, if you have the smaller stores, if that's all you got, that's fine. Just maybe do a little bit of research and maybe try to find a place where you can research the beef and you can talk to somebody that knows where it is. So in a perfect world, all the butchers would know where your beef comes from. But look, unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world. Mm -hmm. So... A lot of people, like when we talk about beef, I know a lot of people that are vegan because they feel it, it doesn't have anything to do with whether or not they, they feel like eating meat is healthy for their body. They want to have a, a lower impact on the, on the environment, and they want to not kill things. Mm-hmm. But when I'm looking at it, I'm like, well, I don't know seems like a lot of things are dying in the fields as well. Like when, when you have a, a vegetable operation, I mean, there's a lot that goes into that. I mean, you got to clear off the land. You've got you, you've got all kinds of small animals that are getting displaced or killed and the, the combines coming through there. Do you see what I'm saying? Like just because you're choosing vegan as a, as a choice to, because you think you're going to kill fewer beings on this earth. Is that really true? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I feel like since the beginning of time, this has been like a battle between carnivores and and, and, and herbivores. So, I mean, just because you're vegan, I, there was some video I saw on YouTube that put it perfectly. And it said, because you're vegan does not make you morally superior than people who choose meat. Because if you're Amen. vegan, like, like you said, uh, like a broccoli field, if you're going to eat that broccoli because you're vegan, well, guess what? There are going to be rats, there's going to be insects, there's going to be mice, there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that's going to die because it's attacking that produce. And something that a lot of people don't understand or they don't really realize is that, I mean, plants, vegetables, they're living things too. Like, you know, you know that smell of freshly cut grass? Yeah. Like after you cut it, it smells really good. That's actually a chemical signal that the grass is sending saying, hey, we're being attacked. So mm-hmm. that grass is alive. All plants are alive. So to say that you're saving lives being killed because you're eating vegan, not really because your product, the production of your vegan items, some livestock were injured or killed like rats, owls or whatever. And so, I mean, and yeah, a lot of people say that uh, cow or beef production in particular is really hurting the environment. Well, there was a study done a couple of years ago where 
The whole livestock industry in the United States was responsible for about 2.8% of total greenhouse emissions. Well, transportation was like 25%. And nobody is saying, oh, you should drive less to help save the environment. You should use public transportation. Instead, like Ellen said it a few weeks ago, she was like, hey, eat less beef because it's really hurting the environment. And yet it's only a very small percentage about CO2 emissions, which is very interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, a blanket statement like that, like beef is hurting the environment. That, that's, I don't know, man. I, I think, okay, you could say that, but at the same time, you got to say, well, so is broccoli production. So is, yeah, exactly. So is everything. Like there, there's, there's a, you know, it's a give and take. You want to grow something, something else is probably going to die. If mm-hmm. you want to, you know, kill, you want to raise a cow, well, that cow is obviously going to die for you to to do that. But at the same time, when you have those grass-fed farms, lots of other stuff is not being killed, right? Like, oh, yeah. it's just kind of a natural natural environment. Like, the cow goes and grazes through there, and there's all kinds of insects and, and rats and mice and everything else that just live there normally. Oh, yeah. I mean, and usually sometimes, usually the only things that will die in those operations are if they're close to like some coyotes. The farmers have to go out there and kill the coyotes so they don't kill the cows, but they're just protecting them. But yeah, usually there's no problems like that. And so it's just like a natural environment. The cows are in their natural habitat, eating grass, sleeping, being happy, pooping everywhere. So so how do you think that, that I mean, it almost seems like there's becoming a, a bigger divide among these small groups. Like the vegans obviously have a, a loud voice and they're, they're very um, opinionated about what what they want, then you have the the uh, you know the the carnivores or the omnivores. Really, is is what most of us are. We pretty much eat everything and things that don't even occur naturally <laughs> on the planet. <laughs> um, but how do you think that 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 divide? Do you see it kind of growing, or do you see it kind of through education? Things like what you're doing, things like Michael Pollan. Uh, all the different work that he's doing and people like him. Do you see that education kind of makes people um, have a different opinion about food? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I don't know. I would say right now it's kind of stagnant because, I mean, there's so much misinformation. And the problem is that if you feel a certain way, you're usually going to research topics and articles and and research that's really going to be geared towards what you believe. And so I think a lot of people are going to need a more more of an open mind, which, I mean, it kind of goes on both sides, people that eat meat and people that don't. And so I think we really need to communicate a little bit better. And a lot of times people would just get heated like instantly, like, oh, you're against carnivores, so I'm going to defend them to the death. And so I think (laughs) there's room on both sides to kind of to kind of have some really good debate. And I've seen a lot of really good debate, but I've interviewed some people. We interviewed some uh, a dairy farmer in Oregon. His name is Derek Josie. And he is super active on Facebook and Instagram. And he has a lot of animal activists kind of attack him. And the stuff that they'll say to him is just demeaning towards him and his family. And I mean, just the things he goes through and he fights back all the time, which is fantastic. But I think there's a lot of things that people can learn more about if we just are kind of more patient and do better research. And so I'm very hopeful because I think all of social media is being really, really helpful because more and more farmers are going there to kind of spread their message. And I think if that kind of continues for 
five, 10 more years and people are going to ha- are going to be able to see exactly what goes on to a farm. And hopefully that will kind of lead us to more, a better understanding of what goes on and people kind of actually agreeing, which I think would be really cool if we could all agree on some stuff. Yeah. Well, certainly. And, and, you know, to each his own, whatever, if you don't want to eat a living animal, great. That's fine. Uh, yeah. It doesn't bother me, whatever. But it's just this, this, this attitude of, of, of the morally superior, uh, because you choose not to, that everyone that is doing that is somehow beneath you. That doesn't sit well with, with really anyone that's not exactly on that team, I think. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I, I see, you know, obviously, uh, it seems to me that the healthiest meat that you could get is, is a wild animal that you go and hunt. And there's, a, there's certainly a big movement now for people that have become so interested in their food and realize, okay, uh, grass-fed, grass-finished, that's great. But what's even better than that would be an elk or a deer or a turkey that I kill myself that's a completely wild animal. And you're seeing a lot of ocean-to-table, uh, hunt-to-table, and and we have seen over the past few years like this farm to table that you see actually in restaurants and now and I think that that's a really good uh, direction because I think that as people realize you know if you if you want to go kill a deer man good luck because <laughs> it's not as easy as you. Th- think it is. I mean, maybe in some places it's pretty easy, but if you've never done it before and and your your idea of a hunter is this stereotypical drunk person out there just blasting at whatever and coming back with a deer, well, that's not going to get one. I mean, that's pretty hard, really. You got to put in a lot of time and and um and occasionally, you know, you might live in a place where they are just a, a complete nuisance and they're everywhere. But after you kill one or two of them, they're going to get really wise for that very quickly. And it doesn't happen very often after that. <laughs> but I, I do like that that as people start to understand through their own experience where their food comes from, it's all very much a lot more difficult than than an outsider who's never tried to raise something in a garden or to kill something with their own uh, weapons or hands, it's way more difficult. And that that's what was really good about that Michael Pollan book is kind of he went into it kind of thinking, well, I'll just kind of cobble together this this plate of food. And then as he's doing it, you know, it's like it's over a year before he actually sits down for this this meal that he has in this book and it part, you know, and it's all coming from, from something that he had a part in, but all at different times of the year, like to think about doing that today and putting together a plate of food tonight with all things that you grew or killed, man, that's, that's hard. Oh yeah. really hard. And it gives you a lot more respect for, um, people that are growing or, growing anything, whether that's a live animal or any sort of vegetable, anything. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. And then to do it on a, on a large scale is even, is even more difficult, I would imagine. Oh yeah. Like I have trouble with our little backyard garden, but I mean, imagine having like thousands of acres of broccoli or, or 500 head of cattle. I mean, just the scale of it is just mind bottling. So yeah, like the scale of it is crazy. And I think a lot of people don't really realize that. Yeah. So one of the things I heard on your podcast was was that you were talking about how 
there are a lot of farms that are just going away. And these are these are fourth, fifth, sixth generation farmers that just can't make it anymore. So first of all, I'd like to know why why you think that's happening, that so many of these fifth generation farmers are are not able to do what their heritage is. The big one right now are dairy farms. So you're having all these, you're having like almond milk, pea milk, cashew milk, all these different nut milks come out. And that's really having a huge impact on um, on dairy production. And so because of that, because they're having a lot more milk products in the environment or a lot more milk products that consumers can choose from, uh, the price of milk has just plummeted. And so these fourth, fifth, fifth generation dairy farms are going under because, I mean, they, they there's so many products to choose from now that the consumer doesn't exactly have to go right towards dairy milk. They can choose any number of milks. They can choose soy milk or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it's just not profitable. So you're having them go under and they're having to sell off all their cows. And there's some counties, I think it was somewhere in Pennsylvania, I think. There was this one county 25 years ago that had like a thousand dairies. Well, now they have one. And I mean, mm-hmm. that's happening all across the country where more and more dairies are going under. And so, I mean, it's just not profitable. And I mean, especially the life of a dairy farmer is difficult because you've got to get up three, four times a day to milk them. And that's an hour long process. You've got to feed them. You've got to take care for them. So it's a 24-7 job. And so that the workload on top of it not being very profitable is just kind of, it's burning out dairy farmers. And so that's one of the large reasons why a lot of them have been going under. So will those people choose a different t- type of farming or will they, are they just do they not? Well, they, I mean, they, maybe they don't know anything about vegetable farming or don't have the the right land or whatever. But what what happens to them? They just move on. Yeah, so it it, it kind of depends. But some some usually will grow their own feed or they'll have a couple acres of hay or corn or whatever. So usually they'll have something that they can farm. But some might be having to go full scale hay, full scale corn, or maybe they're just old and they're going to retire and just sell off their cows. So it, it really varies per, um, per, per the operation. But yeah, I, I've interviewed a bunch of them where they're saying, yeah, our neighbors lost all their cows. They've gone under. I, I'm part of a, a dairy group on Facebook and all the time. And, and I had no idea about this, but um, especially because yesterday, October 10th was mental health day. The suicide rate for dairy farmers is at an all time high because I mean, you're having people that, they're losing their sixth generation farm and they think it's all their fault. And it's not their fault. It's just the industry. It's what's going on right now. Um, And so that's a huge thing going on right now. Like mental health is huge in the dairy industry. I mean, you're having all these people lose their jobs. So it's a really difficult time. So there's been a lot of people, I know a lot of FFA chapters around the country have been, they've been doing like a gallon challenge and they'll challenge you to go to the store and buy a gallon of milk every time you go to like a food store or Walmart or wherever because that's going to help the farmer in the end, hopefully. So yeah, it's, should, it's definitely a tough time in the dairy industry. That's for sure. There was a there was a challenge going around the uh, the bodybuilding community or and and the CrossFit community of the Go Mad challenge, and that was mm-hmm. a gallon of milk a day. So you drink a gallon of milk a day. They need to bring that back. Oh then yeah, that would help. You, you put some weight and muscle on if you drink a gallon of milk a day. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. But that, that was it, man. <laughs> it was kind of funny though because people would uh, they would video them trying to drink 
a gallon of milk a day. It's harder to drink a gallon of milk in a day than you might think. Um, oh yeah, some of the <laughs> people are people are trying to 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 get it down at the end uh, of the day, but some were unsuccessful. But if they bring that <laughs> back, if they bring that back, it could it could have a uh, a big impact on the dairy industry. Um, yeah, you wouldn't think that just a little bit of almond milk would would destroy a, a an industry like that, but I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I can see crazy. how. Like, if if all of a sudden you were buying, you know, ten families were buying ten gallons of milk every week, and now they all go to almond milk. Well, that's just unnecessary, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's it's crazy. And the the funny thing is, there there was some study done in Australia, I think about two years ago, where they found that the amount of almonds in almond milk was actually very, very low. And it was a different mixture of like water and a bunch of other stuff. So the almond milk they were getting was actually very little bits of it were almond. And so it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's another one of those things where people think, oh, well, this doesn't come from an animal. It comes from a plant, so it's got to be healthier. Well, they don't read the ingredients on the back or the ingredients on the back aren't exactly entirely accurate. So it's one of those things where Sure, is it healthy for you, but is it really healthy for you? So, yeah. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Yeah, well, there are definitely people that have have issues with lactose and 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 don't do well drinking milk. I mean, that's that's for sure. Oh yeah, no, totally. And, yeah, and so they they have a choice that they can either just not drink milk, but if they like to eat cereal, which isn't healthy at all, they can <laughs> eat it with with almond milk. I fixed my kids on cereal by telling them how much uh, how much was the allowable insect content in cereal. Mm-hmm. And none of them really like cereal much anymore. <laughs> I, I bet that was a good tactic. Yeah, I bet they don't yeah. like it anymore. I, and and my my numbers were way off. I was like, you know, there's like they allow like sixty or seventy five percent insects in there, and they were like, what? I was like, yeah, all the grain. <laughs> there's like crickets and all kinds of stuff in there, just eating, and then they just pour it in and start making cereal, and they don't take the time to take the crickets out, and so they're in there too, and they were like. <laughs> <laughs> really? No more crickets for us. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I don't really like this as much as I used to. Um, That's funny. But yeah, so you can, as a parent, you can you can get them off cereal by by using fake news. Uh, I will. I will of add your that own. to our manufactured our manufactured fake news on on your own. <laughs> whatever, 
Yeah, crickets, scorpions, whatever, whatever would be the least appealing insect. But there is actually, right? There's like an allowable uh, insect content in grain. I don't know what the exact percentage is, but it's like very small. And it's it's not the like, oh, we're going to allow this. It's like, oh, we can't really get all of it. So you're not going to get it out. Oh, yeah, no. And I mean, again, it's. Oh yeah, it's it's like it's extra protein. It's not going to hurt you. You're fine. I mean, there are people in like Southeast Asia eating scorpions and candy. So I mean, you'll be fine eating it in cereal. Oh yeah, no, it would be fine. But if you don't want your kids to eat cereal, that's a good tip. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, um, totally agree. <laughs> because because the cereal, man, that it's got so much sugar in it. It's unbelievable. All I the mean, sugar, yeah, all of it. Yeah. So what about GMOs? Oh, good question. Good question. So we inter- I actually interviewed. He's kind of like the godfather of GMOs, Dr. Kevin Falta at the University of Florida. So that'll come out in a few weeks. So yeah, GMOs basically were able to grow plants quicker, bigger, with less resources because of GMOs. There's not a huge amount of GMOs right here. Like I said earlier, there's only 13 in the United States. And one one of them is apples, for example. There's a variety of apples to where they don't oxidize as quickly. You know, when you cut them, they brown really quickly. Well, now it's a lot slower to oxidize because of GMOs. Basically, you can turn on and off genes in the DNA, or you can transfer DNA from one species, from one organism to another one. For example, I thought you might like this one. I listened to one of Dr. Kevin Falta's podcasts that he has, and they actually have a variety of salmon. I don't know where it is exactly, but the salmon grew really well, but it only grew for a couple of months throughout the year. So they turned on one of the genes in the salmon and made it grow all year round. And so it's hmm. the same salmon, totally safe to eat. I forget where it is exactly, but I think it's still growing through trials. And so because that salmon had its gene turned on, it can grow all year round. So you can have a lot more readily, readily available salmon no matter the season. So GMOs are great, especially because we've got so many people that we've got to feed. GMOs help us grow more with less resources because, I mean, farmland is kind of slowly disappearing. And well, I mean, so, I get, I, I, I hear you on that, but... Like GMOs get a bad rap because people don't know what they are, and and it is a genetically modified organism, right? That's that's what it's right. Yes. So so would it, I mean like and, and I don't even know this. I try to avoid GMOs just because I think I should, but I honestly I don't know whether or not that's the right choice or or not. I mean I'm a victim of of the of the media just like everybody else, and so I I try to avoid them. But what about like a like a seedless grape? Is that a genetically modified? organism like to take to to breed something to where it it doesn't have seeds or a water seedless watermelon or like is that a gmo or affected by gmos that's a good question um and and, i mean kudos on you for being just i mean open-minded because there's a lot of people that just say oh i'm never going to eat a gmo at all but um so seedless grapes aren't exactly a gmo they're a result of selective breeding like an mm. example being carrots. Carrots back in the day were purple. And so back in, I think the Dutch did it, they bred carrots until they had an orange one. So that is just, you, you like with apples, you have 1,500 different types of apples around the world. So with selective breeding, like, like the grapes, you would take two different grape varieties and breed them, and you mm-hmm. would get all these different combinations of grapes, and eventually you would wind up with some that were seedless. Same thing mm-hmm. with watermelons, mm-hmm. same thing with a bunch of other stuff. So there's GMOs, and then there's selective breeding, which is totally fine, just like GMOs are fine. Right. But you're, I mean, aren't you, when you're breeding those, aren't you genetically modifying them? I mean, it may not fit the the 
definition of a GMO as we're as we're talking about it. But like I started thinking about, it, I was like, well, that has been genetically modified through breeding, right? Or, yeah. Or am I yeah. Off? Yeah. So it is technically genetically modified. So the term GMO or genetically modified organism is really just based towards anything that was modified in a lab setting. Okay. But All selective right. breeding, you are kind of changing the genetics of those plants more on like a natural state. You're going to breed them with things of their own species, like grapes with grapes, apples with apples, mm-hmm. all that good stuff, until you get a variety that you like. Like the, um, you know, the cotton candy grapes, that's an example of selective breeding. You're just breeding something until you reach a desired outcome. Okay. All right. And what about when you're, when you're, you're breeding something with, with something else, like a, like an orange and a, uh, like a tangerine, what is, whatever that is. Orangerine? I'm kidding. I don't know. Orangerine or nectarine or, you know, so you have like a nectarine or, and then you have like an orange and a nectarine and you get a tangerine. I don't know. Yeah. Somehow you get something different when you start mixing these, these fruits together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's true. That That's also going to be selective breeding. I mean, you can do a lot with selective breeding. It's going to be something to where kind of the DNA of those plants are going to be very, very similar. And so they're going to have some success in creating a new cultivar, which is what usually it's called. Mm-hmm. And so it really just depends on what, what you're growing. But that's a really so good that question. Could, that could actually happen in nature though, right? You could have, you could be growing two things together and then they, they somehow create a third. Yeah, exactly. You could be in the middle of a rainforest and you could have one banana plant next to another variety of banana plant and they would grow a new banana. So yeah, that right. that is definitely naturally occurring. Okay. And so so then the idea with scientists, I don't know, 50 years ago is that you could go into the lab setting and instead of instead of uh of br- selective breeding for many years, you could go in there and change something right away and avoid right. all of that that whole step right that that's the idea behind gmos right yeah so you can do that but also you can use um dna from different species i can't remember what exactly it was um but you can take um a dna because all th- all living creatures have dna and dna works collective like it's all the same so it's all the same genes and all that stuff and so you can select genes and put them in another species to help them grow a certain way but when it comes to that, with GMO crops or GMO varieties of food, they're going to have to go through sometimes 5, 10, 15, even longer years of recommendation and research until they're finally approved. And so it's not like, like you hear a lot of people talking about Monsanto. It's not like Monsanto creates a corn GMO variety and it's on the market the next day. It goes through years and years of research to make sure it's... It's safe for consumers, it's profitable, it's going to be good for the environment. So it goes through a lot of checks and balances along the way. So, I mean, obviously, GMOs are some sort of a concern because the way that you're describing it sounds like a great idea. Sounds like, yeah, well, that makes sense. Let's, Let's create something that you don't have to spray insecticide on because it's already in the plant. Or something like that, or and it'll save farmers a lot of money. We'll be able to produce way more crops. I mean, that sounds like a good idea. So, where along the line did GMOs get such a bad rap? And there's so many things that seem like a good idea, and they're really not after mm-hmm. after they are in the real world. Did that start to happen with GMOs, or why did they get a bad rap? Because the way that you're describing them sounds like that sounds like a fine idea. 
but obviously something had to go wrong somewhere. Yeah, it, it kind of took a bad turn um, because it was kind of behind a big company, Monsanto. I mean, that's where a lot of people that are kind of anti-establishment, anti-big government, anti-big company kind of got fed up with it. And the problem is that also kind of a reason why farmers don't like it. There was an issue years ago back when they first came out. So you'd have farmer A and farmer B right next to each other. Farmer A got Monsanto corn seeds, which is fine. Farmer B did not. Well, when those plants needed to reproduce, you know, they released pollen. All of a sudden, farmer B now has a cross-pollinated GMO corn, but he got it for free when farmer A paid for it. Well, Monsanto is going to find out about that, sue them, and if farmer B doesn't pay or doesn't switch to GMO crops, they're going to buy his farm and he's going to be out of business. So that's an issue, which, I mean, first off, it's kind of understandable that Monsanto has to protect their product, but also it's kind of weird because, I mean, their GMO crops are also going to reproduce and you can't really stop pollen that well. So it's kind of one of those things where it's, it makes sense, but it's also kind of, a, kind of a weird thing. And there's a lot of research out there, both with really good information, both with really bad information, kind of talking about GMOs. There are some that are just researched by anti-GMO people and their research will be completely full of stuff that just kind of slams, slams GMOs because people are kind of against them. And usually, nine times out of ten, the people that are going to be super-duper against GMOs are going to be like, you know, your anti-vaxxers, your people that are just against everything. And then you're going to have those people like yourself that don't really know about GMOs and are kind of trying to figure it out. And so, I mean, there's still research that needs to be done. There's been a lot of research in the past 5, 10, 15 years that have shown GMOs are healthy, GMOs are fine to eat. But I mean, of course, we need some more studies that are going to be over the long term to kind of see the overall effects from five or from from like 50 to 60 years of consuming them. And mm -hmm. so there's definitely a lot of misinformation out there. We were talking with um, Dr. Folta, and he was working in, I think, Uganda. And they were having an issue where a lot of kids were dying prematurely, or they, they were dying when they were like five or six years old. And the disease started because of some vitamin deficiency. And first they would lose their vision and next they would lose their, um, they would lose like, I think their immune system would go down and then they would die. Well, they, Dr. Folta and his team developed um, a GMO variety of apples or uh, of, of bananas that would solve that problem. It, they created it and it would solve their vitamin deficiency and they knew that this would be fine. Well, the Ugandan government decided, oh, well, the UK doesn't really agree in GMOs. They haven't done a lot of research on them yet, and so they haven't approved them. So we're going to follow that, and we're not going to do it. Well, because there's so, mis there's so much misinformation out there, they just went by what the UK said. And instead of giving the kids the exact remedy for their disease, they just let it die off. And so they're still trying to fight that. They're still trying to figure it out. But I mean, there's just so much misinformation out there, and there's a lot of just, I don't know, just weird studies out there that show that they're good, but there are some other studies that show that they are not harmful, but that there isn't sufficient evidence to show that they are, that they're not harmful, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, no, it definitely does. And that's one of the reasons why I kind of tend to stay away from them, because there aren't studies that say what it does to you in 30 years. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't know. And so if I don't know and I've got a choice and I'm standing right there and one says non-GMO and one says GMO and they look about the same, I'm probably going to go with the non-GMO. But, you know, it's not like a religion for me. I'm just going to try to make a choice. If I don't know, 
then I'm probably going to go with the what I consider the most natural thing. Because yeah. how do you go? How do you go wrong with that? But but at the same time, I don't understand GMOs. I don't understand that some probably are good and some probably have no effect on you whatsoever. But I don't know the difference. So if I don't know the difference, I'm just going to kind of tend towards going towards what I believe is the most natural. That's that's just how I do it. No, I mean I don't blame you. There's still a lot of stuff to be learned. I mean I don't understand them completely, but that's what we're trying to do. Kind of interview people that actually know a thing or two about them. So yeah. I know. And um, I'll tell you what though, in that in that situation with a farmer though, once you were telling me about that, I had heard those those stories before oh, yeah. about the Monsanto crops. One farmer mm-hmm. has it, one farmer doesn't. That seems to be a, a situation of a large company with lots of lawyers being able to overcome somebody else because I would really think that that other farmer, farmer B, that's trying to grow organic pro- produce or he's trying to grow his own corn that he has a market for. And now he's got this cross-pollinated corn that a, a segment of the population doesn't want because it's got GMOs in it. He's like, well, you just destroyed what I was working on. I should sue you. Yeah, Of course, exactly. he's, not, he's not going to. <laughs> he's not going to be successful. I mean, I'm sure that there have been plenty of, plenty of suits against a big company like Monsanto saying that you cross-pollinated my whole crop. Now, I can't sell this, you know, or I have to sell it to a, a market that's less valuable or, or, you know, they're only paying so much per pound where if this was organic produce and I could claim that it was organic, it, I could sell it for way more. It seems like they would have, seems like they would have a case, but they're never going to win against a giant corporation like that with, with so many lawyers. Oh yeah. I mean, they're, they're huge. They, so they got bought out by Bayer. So they're still around, but they're now with Bayer, the chemical company, instead of just being their own Monsanto branch. But yeah, they're still around. Yeah, it, it's it's really weird. It's it's a very weird space, that's for sure. Yeah. All right. What about fish farming? What do you know about fish uh, farming? Oh man. So all right. So my grandpa had a fish farm, or he still does, and it was right behind my childhood house. And so he grew up, or when I grew up, he was raising hybrid bass, and so we would sain the ponds, we would catch them, all that jazz. I remember. I don't know if it was just like a lie, but it was one of the truck drivers told me, he was like, yeah, man, this fish is so popular. The Queen of England got some. I was like, oh, shoot, <laughs> are you for real? And so, yeah, I've, I've grown up around fish farming. I know there's a bunch of stuff going on right now in the fish farming industry. You've got um, like your typical ponds to where, you know, they'll be constructed. You'll grow salmon, you'll grow fish, catfish or whatever. And then you've got kind of your natural ones to where they'll be out. In the, you'll, you'll have like these giant fish pins like floating out in the ocean and they'll be raising Hmm. their fish there or you've got like your naturally caught fish like cod or salmon. So I think it's great. I think something that's really funny talking about like issues in animal agriculture, PETA, you know, people for the ethical treatment of animals. Nobody thinks fish are cute, right? Well, a a few years (laughs) ago. Oh yeah. Well, there you go. You're you're the minority. I mean, I think fish are cool. (laughs) PETA was like, you know what? People don't think fish are cute. So we need to make people eat less fish so we're going to come up with a campaign that says, save the sea kittens. And so they had all these like images of fish, but they looked like cats. And they were like, oh, you need to save the sea kittens from being eaten. I'm just like, why? Why are you going to call them the sea kittens? Because they're cute? Because it's better than fish? But I mean, I love fish. I like to eat fish as much as often. We we go and get some public salmon, which is pre-marinated. I think it's like um, bourbon and then brown sugar, and it is delicious. Yeah. Well, 
That's that's interesting because there's there's uh you know fish farming I think can be sustainable. Oh yeah. Uh, it seems I, I think that there can be um, some you know effluent that goes back into a water system or whatever you got to be careful about. But it seems like that's a that's a good use of a of an acre of land. You can grow a lot of poundage in an acre, like with catfish or tilapia or or salmon, I guess. Those floating pins in the ocean are very interesting. I mean, I, I watched this documentary where there was this um, big canyon that goes right up to the land, and and uh, it was very deep, right up right up against the, the the land, and it was in this big canyon. So on three sides, you had kind of a natural barrier, mm-hmm. and then they extended a net right across the front, and they were raising tuna in there. Oh, uh, wow. Well, they didn't raise them in there. They kind of brought them in. They caught them. And then they kind of pulled this net into the the area where the 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 bigger net was, and then they opened that net, and then they had these these really large tuna. I think they were yellowfin, and they had them in this area that had natural food, and it was just the ocean. I mean, they would be in there normally, but they couldn't get out. And then when it came time to uh, to harvest them, they would just basically purse sane that area and bring them right in. It was very interesting. I don't know how how you know that seems pretty expensive operation. So I don't know how that works because obviously the the fish needs to be reflected. You know, when it goes to market, it's got to be reflected in the in the operation costs, and it's probably far more expensive than one that was just caught. You know, by by conventional methods. Yeah, that's true. But I want to do some more podcasts about you know how to select how to select the right fish, you know, for people that don't live near the ocean or don't kind of understand how it goes, because there are certain fish that the the fishing method is just too effective. Like, for example, the redfish uh, is a fish that we like to fish for. And for a while, they allowed people to fish for them with this method where the boat would go out and they would have uh, smaller boats on the boat with, with purseine nets, and they would have helicopters or airplanes above with uh, the, they could see these fish, and in certain times of the year, there would be this giant red ball on the surface, and it was the redfish spawning, and they could say, "Okay, well, they're they're at this coordinate," and then the smaller boat would go out and put a net so far around these fish that they would never even know that it was happening, and then they would purse purse that net and um, catch every single one of them. Dang! So. Yeah, like every single one of them with almost no bycatch. That's that's the interesting thing too, is like on the one hand, it's really good because it's incredibly effective and there's very little bycatch. But on the other hand, you're catching every single one of them. Uh-huh. Like that is never going to be a good method where, you know, there's some fish that puts themselves in this situation to where they're they're on the surface and in a ball and you can just go catch them all. Like that opposed to, you know, fish that are typically caught, you know, reef fish like a yellowtail snapper, probably not going to get fished out because that that is being done with pretty much with hand lines uh, one at a time. And the fish is just a smart fish that doesn't allow itself to be in a situation like the the one with the redfish. So if you're going to the if you're going to the store and you see, you know, yellowtail snapper, that's a that's a sustainable fish. That's one that was was caught in the ocean by rod and reel or or hand line. And I see it happening all the time. The boats go out there, they sit on these fish for days, 
and they're they're catching them. They're not catching them one after another. Mm-hmm. They have to work for it. You know, they you know the fish get smart and they have to chum heavily. And but you know, I want to do another podcast about that, like how to pick different fish that that are caught sustainably and not just the ones that I know about in the Florida Keys, but all over the world. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yeah, well, that's kind of where where I think this this whole movement goes is that is that people want to make a choice. And I think that for the most part, we've talked about vegans and we've talked about people with strong opinions and people that are that are anti-GMOs and anti-vaccines and all that stuff. But for the most part, most people are just trying to make a good choice for their health and for their family's health. And some people get far too carried away with it, of course, just like anything else. But for the most part, I think that people are, they're really trying to make the right choice. And I think with education and kind of to your point of keeping an open mind and being being able to, to keep an open enough mind to be like, well, okay, is this good for me? Is this good for the environment? Is this a good choice? And and knowing enough to be able to determine that this is a better choice than than what's sitting next to it. I think that's where... And then obviously, the thing that's sitting next to it, if enough people know, then it just becomes less valuable because people aren't buying it in the stores. Something that takes a big toll on the environment or somebody something that takes a big toll on something else, then it just becomes less popular. And the things that, that take less toll become more popular. That's all with education. Oh yeah, no, totally agree. And and like you said, I mean, people are just trying to make the best decision for themselves and for their family, what's going to be healthiest for them. That's on one side, but on the other side, you've got all these companies that are trying to make more money. And so it's 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 very difficult. People <laughs> are trying to eat healthy, but they're buying products from companies that are trying to make huge profits. So it, it's very interesting. I think that is where most of the misinformation comes from. But I mean, yeah, most Certainly. people, yeah, most people just want to eat healthy, but it's so challenging. You go to the store, you have so many options. Like, I mean, with cereal, with everything. So you you just got to be careful. Oh, you see there, it's like, oh, the doctor told me that I need, I've got high blood pressure or whatever. So I'm going to have have to get stuff that's heart healthy. And the next thing you know, you're eating, you're eating, you know, tablespoons of sugar in, in breakfast cereal that is supposed to be heart healthy. Like, I don't know how they get away with that. Oh, yeah. Um, or, or your doctor and, says, hey, lay off the red meat because your cholesterol is high. All right, well, let me lay off the meat. But I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep drinking like five Diet Cokes a day or five Mountain Dews a day. Right. Yeah. Right. It's all it's all kind of messed up. But one thing that we didn't talk about that I do want to just touch on before we finish up here, we were talking about you know vegans, veg, vegetarians, maybe people that are trying to make that decision because they don't want to take a toll on the environment. Maybe it's an environmental decision. So what about this new style of farming, which I know that you had, I listened to a couple of your podcasts, they were short ones, on hydroponic and aeroponic. And so in this situation where you're growing vegetables in a hydroponic environment, a greenhouse, that would be a situation to where less is being killed, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think, honestly, I think with the future of ag, I think hydroponics is definitely going to be the answer. So, for example, in in big urban areas, New York, Chicago, they can have these huge greenhouses, which can be from renovated warehouses or even on the top of skyscrapers. It's going to be a completely closed off system to where you're growing plants in an indoor environment 
where you can control the temperature, control the pests, which usually nine times out of 10, there's going to be no pests in there. But when there are, Mm -hmm. you can bring in some biocontrol or biological control like insects. You can bring in ladybugs and they will eat the bad insects like aphids. And so Mm -hmm. you can completely control the environment. Hydroponics saves about 80 to 90% more water over the life cycle of the plant because there's no runoff. There's a lot less evaporation. And yeah, like you said, you're going to be a lot more insects. Mammals are not going to be injured because it's going to be in a very controlled environment. Most of these greenhouses, you can go into them. Like if you go to Disney World, they have one on the land ride. And that thing is immaculate. Most of these greenhouses are going to be super clean, super nice, where there's like not even a little pile of trash anywhere. Like it's, you could eat off the floor. It's so clean in there. So I Hmm. definitely think that that is going to be the future. So do you see that like abandoned shopping malls and, and things like that will, will turn into a agricultural development like that? Yeah, I think that would be perfect. Um, Cause speaking about fish, fish is the most feed efficient animal in terms of like for every pound of feed a fish eats, it puts on one pound of body mass for a cow. It's got to eat eight pounds of feed to put on one pound. And so you can have aquaponics, which is the process of growing fish in plants in the same system. And so if you do that in a warehouse in a big city, you're providing so much food, so much local produce, and all without hurting the environment. And you're saving on transportation costs. You're you're putting jobs into the local economy. The money is staying there and helping the local economy. So I think in big urban areas where they're miles and miles away from farmland, I think this is definitely going to be the answer. Yeah, I think you're seeing, you're already seeing some restaurants starting to do this. Like they'll have the aquaponic tanks in the restaurant and that's what you're eating. You know, that's your salad and they'll have the fish there. And those will be, my friend was showing me this, uh, this restaurant that's doing that. And he thinks that more and more restaurants are going to do that to where you go in there. It's kind of like the old days where you go in there and you pick your lobster out of the tank. <laughs> yeah. In this case, it would be like that's you pick your fish, kind of. Um, like these fish have all been grown there and the watercress is on the top of the water or whatever. And that's your salad and pretty cool situation. In fact, some of the schools, like one of the schools that my, my son went to or both my boys went to, they're thinking about putting in one of these aquaponic things to... Uh, to supply the school with some food, but also to show the students like how this whole situation works. Seems pretty cool. Yeah, that's neat. That's cool. Yeah, I'm glad more schools are doing that. They're kind of showing, when I was teaching, we had a big hydroponic system and it was kind of showing kids that, you know, agriculture is a lot more than cows, sows, and plows. Like you don't have to be this person working in a field. You can have a greenhouse, you can have a hydroponic system and you're contributing to agriculture. Yeah, man. We didn't even get to talk about CBD. What do you know about CBD? <laughs> yeah, so I don't know a whole lot. I researched it a little bit yesterday. I mean, I'm, it's kind of produced the same way olives are produced. Like you kind of crush it and the oil comes out. But mm-hmm. I mean, I th- it is an absolutely booming industry. We've got a guy we're going to interview in a few weeks. Um, but a lot of farmers are turning to produce hemp to produce CBD oil because it's extremely profitable right now. And so I think it's a very interesting industry that's kind of popping up. And I think it would, I mean, greatly not only benefit the ag industry, but also benefit people that are using it. I mean, you won't have to use, I mean, like harsh drugs like um, Advil or Tylenol or whatever. You can use this naturally occurring chemical to relieve your pain, to help you focus. So I think, I mean, I'm all for it. Yeah. So, and then that opens up another another discussion about, you know, as a lot of these states um, make marijuana legal, for medical marijuana, 
do you see that some of these maybe like maybe it could be one of these dairy farmers that's going out of business? I mean, is that is that something that someone with land and and farming experience could transition either to growing hemp or growing medical marijuana? Yeah, I've heard some stories of people where they have where they were growing corn or maybe, for example, they had a dairy farm and then they're like, all right, well, this is going under. Let me try hemp. And it's very profitable. So, I mean, absolutely. They could start producing it. They could start growing it. I mean, hemp or marijuana. I mean, whichever would be best for them. I mean, I definitely think it would be a good opportunity for anybody that would be interested in it. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I bet you it goes for more than corn. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Astronomically more. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Well, man, I appreciate your time. I don't want to take too much more of it, but you answered a bunch of my questions. I'd like to do this again. Yeah, yeah we should. Absolutely, Tom. Hey, seriously, thank you very much for having us on. Um, I've been listening to your podcast. I, I grew up fishing. I've, I've kind of missed being a, an active fisherman, so I'm going to be listening to it more. And I love your Active Fridays. So my wife and I are trying to get more more active. So I like catching up on those episodes too. Those are all really oh, good. Yeah. yeah. What are you guys what are you guys doing you and your wife what are you doing to be more active So we're trying to eat healthier we're watching what we eat we're trying to go out less and we're going to the gym we used to be like gym people once or twice a week but now we're like all right we're going three times a week and we're going to do something active on Saturday like go for a bike ride or whatever so we're trying to be more intentional with what we're doing with how we're mm-hmm. exercising and what we're eating so, so yeah. The next Man, thing, that's super interesting because a guy that knows as much about food and food production as you do, <laughs> when you say you're going to eat healthier, what does that mean? What do you do? Man, it, it means I've got to avoid my my weekly Mountain Dews that I love to splurge on. I like to get these Mountain Dew Kickstarter energy energy drinks, which they're low in sugar, but I mean they're still Mountain Dew. So eating <laughs> like eating healthy, avoiding fried foods, cooking more because we love to go out to eat, but I mean just all that food. It's it's very salty. It's not super healthy. I mean, there's nothing healthier than a home cooked meal. And so we're just trying to be more more productive in doing that and kind of watching what we put into our bodies. Cause sometimes, I mean, we'll get lazy. Like yesterday at my work, we had like a little a little party. And I I'm I'm kind of ashamed to say I maybe had like six or seven cookies, which I know I shouldn't have done that. So I mean, it's just <laughs> about being intentional with what you put in your body. So I've got to get better at it. We've all got to get better at it. I mean, I think you've got a, a, yeah. a pretty good start on it, though. Well, I mean, I'm, <laughs> believe me, we <laughs> had my buddy's birthday came was was the other day. We had a big workout, so you know it's a nice, long, really hard workout. But part of the celebration was donuts, and believe me, I can I can go deep on the donuts <laughs> just like anybody else. But you know, you just try, you know. 90, 95% of the time, you, you, you really, you really try to, to eat the way that is working for you. And then, you know, if you slip a little, little bit here or there, that's, that's all right. I mean, that's the, the Jocko Willink kind of thing. Discipline equals freedom. And if you have the discipline to watch your diet, most of the time you have the freedom to slip a few times and, and it have not, cost you, you know, a lot because you do have the discipline to get right back on. So, you know, that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, but the but the way to do it, I think, is to is to be monitoring what goes in, like writing it down or keeping track on it in some kind of app or something like that. That seems to make the biggest difference for me. Like if I'm if I'm monitoring like how much and what I'm eating, everything's goes better. Mm-hmm. Like everything goes better. But when I just start tossing it in there, 
Boy, <laughs> it goes down pretty easy. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, I, I think the best advice I've heard is is don't be don't strive for perfection with your diet. Just strive for consistency. Like consistently eat healthy. Watch what you're eating, and it's okay to have a cheat day or a cheat meal every now and then. Just be consistent with your diet. So I think that, that was yeah. that was some really good advice I heard on on something. Well. Absolutely. But for just like with so much of the things that we talked about today, like like just just confusion, overall confusion with with like, should I be eating organic? Should I be eating free range? Should I be eating cage free? Like what what's the difference? I don't know. So I'm just gonna try to do that, do the best that I can. And when it comes to diet, you know, people are like, watch what you eat. Well, what does that mean? Like I don't know. That's where there's a lot of, I mean, you think there's misinformation in the food system, man. There's misinformation on the diet side, like crazy. Yeah. It's like, watch what you eat. Okay. Most people just watch it go right down. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, I don't care. I'm just going to eat it. Yeah. But I mean, you know, you got to have a plan. Mm -hmm. You got to have a plan. And and it doesn't really, I don't think that it really matters what it is necessarily. But if you get on something and you try it and you're, you're real strict with it and you try it for a month, and do you feel better? Do you feel worse? Did you have improvements? Yes. Maybe you tweak it a little bit. Maybe you try something else, but you stay real strict on it for a month. And then you sooner or later, you kind of come around this, this sweet spot of like, yeah, I'm paleo six days a week, but I kind of like to have a little carbs, <laughs> you know, one, one day and, and I've been losing weight and I feel great. Well, that's probably it. That's yeah. probably for you then. But, you know, other people, it might be the carnivore diet or it might be something else. But each one of us diff- is different. And, and once you get that, the key is consistency, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, man. Well, tell them how they can find your podcast. Absolutely. And if you're on social, give them, let them know how they can follow you. We're on Facebook, Instagram. Facebook, it's just the Farm Traveler. Instagram, we're farm underscore traveler. We've got a website. It's thefarmtraveler.com. And yeah, we're on iTunes. We're on um, the Waypoint Outdoor Collective on the website. We're on Spotify, your favorite podcast player, whatever it might be. We do weekly episodes and we're trying to do some more monthly series called Ag 101, where we kind of explain in-depth topics in the ag industry. So yeah, that's where they can find us. All right. I like those Ag 101s. Thanks, that's, a, thanks. that's a good thing. I listened to the hydroponic one. Yeah, those have been kind uh, of our more popular series. So we're going to try to kind of ramp them up a little bit. Right on. Next, you can you can t- you'll know about CBD and and hemp more. Hey, absolutely. I think that'll be a good topic to cover. It should be. Yeah, for sure. I want to know how they get the THC out of the hemp. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. I did a little bit of research yesterday, but it was kind of a little bit foggy. What I could find is that. It's a different variety, and so the THC, the THC level is very, very low in this particular variety. And so just the CBD in it or whatever is kind of higher. But yeah, definitely yeah. need to do some more research on that. That's for Again, sure. I guess they go back to, they, I guess that starts with like selective breeding. Yeah, like absolutely. They mm-hmm. do, it, do it with that just the same. If they're looking for, for more CBD and less THC, they just start breeding those plants to accomplish that, right? Yeah, 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 it would be so. Right on. All right, man. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. I've got a lot of questions answered. We'll do it again. Absolutely, Tom. Thanks for having me, man. Look forward to the next one. All right. Thank you. See you. See you. Hey, guys, don't forget that we're running a little contest. All you got to do to enter is go to iTunes and leave a rating and review. Five stars would be awesome. And you can win a Yeti 
Hopper Flip 12, and three other 30-ounce Yeti Ramblers that we're giving away. Leave a review and a rating on iTunes. Send me an email at podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. If you're one of the first 60, I'll throw a sticker in the mail, and then we will make the choice for who wins all of these. We'll draw randomly, and we'll make that on November 1st. So good luck, and thanks for the reviews. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.